This is Fine, Episode 1.6, Part 1. Organize, Organize, Organize. Today's episode is a little bit different from our usual episodes for the reason that I mentioned on Facebook a few days ago. Jeremy's out, so that leaves me holding down the fort on my own. And rather than talk at you for an hour, I decided that it would be much more interesting and productive to record this conversation with a good friend of mine uh, who's a progressive organizer in rural Pennsylvania, Darcy Tronzo. She has some real interesting insights into uh, the challenges that are facing progressive organizers in places like uh, Indiana County, where she is, and uh, nationwide as well, and has uh, also some really great ideas. So I hope you enjoy this interview. And the second part of this week's show is also going to uh, be a little bit more lighthearted. It's going to feature a conversation with another one of my friends, uh, Mataki Reed, who is going to be talking with me about classic 90s era PC games. Enjoy. So I am here with uh, my uh, good friend, Darcy Tronzo, who is an organizer and uh, currently work, uh, organizing in um, southwestern Pennsylvania. The thing that I wanted to, the, the reason why I wanted to um, talk to you, besides just like the fact that you're awesome and we're friends, um, is uh, because, uh, you know, you're doing some really important work uh, in Indiana County. And there are a lot of people who are also doing uh, this very important work. And I think those people don't get enough exposure. We don't really know what's happening, uh, especially like, you know, people like myself living in, you know, our coastal enclaves. Um, uh, and, um, I think it would be really valuable for, uh, for our listeners and, you know, for everybody, uh, who might listen later to, um, have some information about like, what did, what is, what are you working on? What are you doing? Um, what kind of uh, what kind of efforts are happening on the ground in places like uh, rural Pennsylvania right now? Sure, and um, you know some of this is going to require a little bit of a little bit of background too, because I think a lot of people have this impression that um, that areas in Appalachia and places like southwestern Pennsylvania have long been this void of progressive organizing, and that's simply not true. And I think a lot of it, as you said. Uh, has a lot to do with exposure. And I think that it's not even that we're not tooting our own horn, it's that for a lot of different reasons that we don't get as many resources, um, financial or human capital, to be able to engage ourselves in these kinds of things. But also, it doesn't fit with a lot of people's narrative about what's happening in these places. Uh, The reality is we've been engaged in a lot of uh, pushback. I mean, if you really want to dial it back and go back to good old-fashioned coal mining resistance or things like the Fugitive Slave Act, we could talk about Southwest, or the Whiskey Rebellion for that matter. We could talk about Southwestern Pennsylvania that way. But um, just within within the last um, decade and a half, there's been a, a significant amount of organizing, um, specifically around municipalism, but also at the state and federal level, um, here in, starting in Allegheny County, but in the further collar counties, um, that are doing really, really great work that also has science to lay over it. I think um, I've introduced you some to I've introduced you, Jerry, to some folks that have a lot of that science. Um, but there's a lot of hard work um, coming from real people that's going into a lot of this stuff. So I wanted I wanted to put that out there first that this isn't new. This is right. this is going on for a long time. 
Um, with regard to what specifically we're doing, and this is a lot, I mean, uh, you know, for many years I've been doing this work, and I've, um, what's interesting is I've jumped both feet back in the, in the, in the slurry because um, I've been in filmmaking for the last six years. You know, I've, I've been back, in, I was in New York City, I was, you know, a location manager and location scout. Um, and working in film, and I still consider myself a filmmaker and consider myself involved in that, but at the same time, um, among the people that I was around in that sort of coastal bubble, they were like, you gotta go get your people. (laughs) (laughs) You have to to go back and do some work in places um, that are being perceived as extremely racist, extremely conservative, Um, And as a coal miner's daughter, I didn't disagree. I feel like I'm in a unique place to be a bridge communicator among these communities. And I know the turf. I've I've been doing this for almost 20 years now, off and on, in various capacities. So that's what found me back here. And really what it was, um, was the day after uh, the federal election this year, um, a friend of mine had posted something on Facebook um, she is a woman of color. She identifies as L- on the LGBTQIA spectrum. Um, she is also um, uh, her family were immigrants, mm-hmm. and so she was she was afraid to come back to her hometown in Indiana, PA. I mean, she was raised here, and she was raised also partly um, in other places, but. Um, I'm legitimately afraid to come back. And a lot of people were afraid to come back and have kitchen table dialogues with their families over Thanksgiving about the election. And that was, that was when I had the indication that things were going, going to get bad. The immediate need to deal with those, those conversations within our families was going to get rough and was going to be emotionally problematic, but also in the communities themselves, because we were anticipating an emboldening of, uh, racist and xenophobic and homosexual uh, homophobic attitudes in these communities, but we wanted to activate the communities that said, "Hell no, we're not we're not standing for this." So, I sort of from my bed in Brooklyn, New York, uh, said, "We need to find the networks of people who are exist who already exist in this community, and help to provide a safety network for people." Well. We identified a few businesses that said that you can come here and spend time uh, to remove yourself from your family. We can get you rides. We can get you tangible needs like food um, if you're thrown out of your family's house or if you're harassed on the street. Um, And within two days, we ballooned to almost 250 volunteers and a couple of dozen businesses who hopped on board to be supportive. And we also had some local legislators that said we're willing to lend support wherever we can. And that was tremendous. But looking at it, I also knew, how do we keep these people active? And this is a tremendous outpouring of support. Um, But as, as as, as we start to slog through, how do we, how do we keep people active? And that, that has been the challenge, but you know, we've, we've kind of moved forward and now, um, this organization focuses, and it's a network. We, we chose not to uh, be involved uh, with a 501c3. We, we mm-hmm. felt that using an active network that engages with 15 or 20 other organizations allows us to sort of function with a mm-hmm. white blood cell model, that these 200 volunteers can kind of gather around a need and, not run, and be loud 
and not run the risk of losing our funding, uh, losing being or, or uh, risk being unseated in an election. So we can say some unpopular things and push back in a way that is a little more forceful. Um, or we can be immediately responsive and not need to go through a cha- the channel of a board of directors to get things done. And so that has been extremely helpful. But currently what we're working on is, um, again, the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs stuff. We have a network of houses, restaurants, um, food suppliers, people who can provide um, immediate support for people in trouble. But we also have people who are working with communities of color, the LGBTQIA community, to do some um, to real, real um, support building around those issues. And now what's happening is we're working legislatively. Um, we're, we have become sort of the active ones on the western uh, rural front uh, to fight back against Senator Toomey. And you may have heard a little bit about Tuesdays with Toomey. Uh, we have engaged directly with the Johnstown office of Senator Cheney's office and have been one of the only groups uh, from the state who have been able to actively get in and speak with some of his staffers. And that's been a really, really important win for us is that we get in, we get to talk with staffers, we have that relationship, and now they're starting to call us back, which is sort of interesting. Um, so there's that piece. Um, we also have a media piece um, where we are really actively trying to push back against the narrative that um, that places like rural western Pennsylvania and places in Appalachia are simply s- sort of beholden to King Cole and that we are only going to um, you know sort of support initiatives that bring coal back to these communities and that's simply not true. Um, even even former coal miners don't believe that we should be doing things like that. And there's a, a group actively working to resist that. So um, that's another one of our initiatives. Um, so, you know, that among many, as we see an issue arise, we sort of throw it up within the group and say, who wants to take this on? And others sort of support it. Letter writing, uh, those kinds of things have been taken on by local churches like the Indiana First, um, Unitarian Universalist has been one of our biggest champions. Every week now they hold a letter writing campaign, and we're doing a lot with the uh, Indivisible playbook uh, mm-hmm. that's been out there. Right. So yeah, that's kind of the, stu- the stuff. I mean, you name it, we're kind of on it at this point. That's- so that that's a really awesome uh, that's a really awesome list of like really amazing things that. Um, that that you're involved in and i'm I'm, i was actually kind of surprised to hear that you were able to get through to to me because you know there was like this whole i mean the news about him for the last uh week or two is that he's basically been avoiding all of his constituents um and like how are you how are you even able to like actually you know get there and is it just because you showed up in person or is it because you knew somebody or What's that? I mean, this is a piece of it. I mean, yeah. I, I used to be, um, once upon a time, um, I, I was, you know, I've done some of this legislative work before, um, but it's, it's again, there's, there's a bit of arrogance that kind of happens in urban centers that we, just by the optics of being the loudest in largest numbers, are going to get it done. And I knew that because nobody saw it coming in the Johnstown office that we would probably be able to walk right in happened. <laughs> he just showed time. up that's the first no that's no, good I mean, that's exactly what happened 
to roll up in a place like that, there was this misconception that many of these human issues are urban issues. Um, Justin Brown, who is one of our press folks with Welcome Home, um, he's he's got a master's in journalism, and he and I, you know, being that I used to be once upon a time a legislative aide for a number of people here in southwestern Pennsylvania, the first Tuesdays with Toomey, um, we took a stack of letters, and he and I were the first two to go. Mm-hmm. And his his staffer did not expect us to show up. Interesting. And uh, yeah, and and we were able to sit down and actually have a conversation. And um, you know, it, it was it was pugnacious, and we we did not agree on everything with the staffer. And initially, she thought that we were just going to be um, full rousers until I made it very a very clear and pointed message that I had been on her side of the desk before, and I know what her job is. Right. Um, now that said, we we have extended probably more empathy than we should have to that position to a certain <laughs> extent. But at the consequence, she I mean, purely through association. I mean, right. you know, we, we were working with someone who said, you know, it sucks to have an asshole for a boss. Sorry about you. <laughs> like, um, but but we have we have also understood, and that's a key point in organizing, is we've made that in. We made that puncture point and she's been receptive. And we don't agree on much, to be frank, but we're convivial and we're able to deliver letters. And she had gotten a little hangry at us at one point and said, you're here during my lunch hour. If you come back later next week, I'll be able to accommodate. So we, you know, an hour later. And as a consequence, we've been able to consistently go back and air our grievances. Uh, we're starting to get letters back from Timmy's office. Many of them are form letters. Many of them are very irritating. Um, and, you know, they're dissatisfying in terms of his position because he's not hearing his constituents. But what that has done for us is we hear his messaging, we immediately leave his office and start getting on the phone with Bob Casey's office. Right. The fact that you're getting a response, right, even though the, the substance of the response is not satisfactory it's still like an indication that they have to go through this process and they're still dealing with you and that there is a lot of like groundswell of opposition to, you know, to Toomey's positions and stuff like that. Right. So that's, that's informative in and of itself, even though, you know, you're probably not going to get him to agree to the, you know, to switch positions. Uh, Correct. Correct. I think that, um, you know, just the optics of it are important. Um, One week in particular, we made sure we took photographs that said, we drove an hour in the snow to get here. You know, yeah. it needs to be known and understood that the effort that we are making is, is critical that we are, we're wasting three wasting. We're taking three hours of our day and spending gas money. That is um, critically important in communities like this, where, you know, the average job is, is a little above minimum wage. And that's the true story. Um, so this is an important piece, and, and to be able to, to leave his office, be dissatisfied with his concise statement on matters that we are pushing back against, be it the immigration and Muslim ban, be it um, and sanctuary cities, um, his positions on um, re, you know um, repeal and replace, which has been a nightmare, mm-hmm. his dragging his feet on, particularly in this region, um, the UMWA pension and healthcare uh, fund 
this it's been particularly problematic. He finally signed on to it, but he was one of the last to come on board. And the ironic thing is, he is literally door to door, back to back with the UMWA pension office. So it's somewhat despicable. But we've been able to leave his office and then get Senator Casey's office on the phone and and push him left, um, push him back to where he belongs, um, in a state and within a democratic system, you know, a democratic with the Democratic Party, where they've consistently held moderate or marched further right because they're chicken shit. And this is problematic for us. So what's been good is Casey's office has been very responsive and they've listened to us and we've said, because of the kind of coalition building we've been doing, this is a multi-county coalition now. We're I'm, I'm seated in Indiana County, but now we're working with Cambria County, Center County, Somerset County. Um, now we're starting to build bridges in Armstrong County and this is groups of hundreds of students, hundreds of immigrants, um, uh, hundreds of LGBTQIA folk who have come together and said no, you know. And this is this has created an interesting coalition where we have groups. And now this hasn't been easy, and there's still struggles being had here, in, just in terms of communication. But you know, mosques and churches and um, um, synagogues and LGBTQIA population coming together and even within differences, starting to hash these things out and saying, if we don't unify, we're going to be in, in deep doo-doo and pushing back to, to Senator Casey's office. And now Senator Casey's office is listening. They're asking for meetings with us. Mm-hmm. Um, the Sierra Club has come to us and said, hey, we see what you're doing. Do you want to use our voter action network list? That's a huge deal. Oh, that's that really gives, big. Yeah. That us, that's political turf. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, so one of the things that I think like this says to, to me and sort of maybe confirms sort of an intuition that that I've had, uh, which is, is that a lot of um, a lot of this organizing, right? There's this huge benefit of having people who are not, you know, being airdropped in every four years and who don't know the community and who don't know, don't like speak the language i guess right. in the broadest sense of that term right where whereas in, instead you have people who um you know who come from this background and who can c- sort of communi- communicate on the same level right it's not like some outsider coming in and telling you like how to do your job it's like a- actual members of your community who are communicating with you and so that like to me that seems like that's uh, a more promising model for getting people to change their opinions yeah, um, let me think about that for a second. So I, I agree with you. And I think that, um, you know, the fact that we have um, uh, the fact that we have a number of people who have been doing this for a long time, and, and in particular, I'm going to name Eric Barker, um, who um, I've introduced you to. And I, and I spoke with him, uh, actually, like I talked to him on the phone last week, uh, but go on. Um, he's someone who I worked with starting in, now granted, we grew up in the same community and he was some years younger than myself, so he knows the turf and he knows the language, but we both, um, worked on some, some big campaigns in the past together, and there was an organization founded in, uh, the early aughts in Pittsburgh called, um, Pittsburgh VIE, and it's, uh, you know, I'm gonna screw this up, but it's Voter Initiative and Education, mm-hmm. and it was started by Matt Merriman Preston, who I think I've already, uh, put you in contact with mm-hmm. as well, 
who has been a political organizer for a long time and has the numbers and like to the door, you know, this is the kind of right. work we're doing here. It's very smart work. It's like stuff that Nate Silver slavers over. And well, it's like, gonna... it's literal micro targeting, right? Like you're literally yeah. going to the door of the person that you know is like somebody yeah. that you're trying to sway. So that's exactly right. And, and the thing is we're working on, for example, I've been doing a lot of phone banking for really small races like um, school board. But what we're doing is we're hoping to use these school board races and Democratic committee seats as ways of filling a bench for the next few years because we have borough council. And the thing is, I need to point out that Eric Parker has been able to successfully um, swing within one election cycle, one or two election cycles, swing a borough council from majority Tea Party to majority progressive. Yeah, and this was part of a conversation. <laughs> like, so when I said I had a conversation with him last week, this was something that he told me. And he said that he did it with something like $2,000. And my, I was like picking my jaw up off the floor. Yep. I was like, are you yep, kidding that's exactly me? Right. <laughs> and I mean, another great example of that is, you know, um, you know, with phone banking, you know, it's a lot of volunteer work, but he was able to cobble together, you know, squeeze a turnip and come up with enough you know money to pay a couple of people ten dollars an hour literally two people ten dollars an hour for two evenings and three on three hour shifts yeah and turn almost a hundred people well 80 people out to a school board meeting where there was a huge issue happening that's sixty dollars you know and what we were able to capture from those issues was also like the this is what matters to people in this community their tax dollars matter their schools matter walkability matters and also like having people sell them snake oil matters <laughs> like they don't want that in their community and so we were able to capture that data and then use those folks for different initiatives within the community immediately go back to them sort of hand-to-hand combat style and say come with us and this is how we're doing that coalition building. It's literal hand-to-hand stuff. That's not to say that a lot of it isn't happening online, too, which is important. It's not an either-or, it's a yes-and kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, one of the right one of the things that, you know, there's been, like, since the election that's been sort of, and even before the election that's been uh, sort of uh, written about a lot in the news is the extent to which... Uh, the Democratic Party has kind of like concentrated its efforts at the very top. And uh, there's been this just complete like bottoming out of um, hollowing out, I would say, of of like organizing at the at the bottom. Um, it's not sexy, and, Jerry. It's not. It, 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 right. It's not sexy. I And, and um, but it's also it's not just that it's not sexy, but it's also that the people who direct those uh, like direct those organizing efforts at the top, like those are people who live in. San Francisco, New York City, yeah. Washington, D.C., okay. uh, and they may not be people who know anything in particular about, like, w- the, um, you know, what is actually happening in uh, rural Pennsylvania, in rural Michigan. I think Michigan but- is a, a kind of a great example where, you know, people were showing up before the election saying, like, we want to volunteer, and they were just being told to go home. Right, which is which is crazy well, if you think about it. Let me give you it, an but... example of that. Um, last year, you know, because I go back and forth, you know, I, I spend time in New York, and last year I was prepping for a film that was like happening in LA. I had some time back here in Western PA, and I was working on another local initiative, you know, with Eric Parker. Um, uh, and we were getting ready for primary season, and I myself was trying to stump for Bernie, and. 
um, someone had, you know, I knew, like I had the turf available to me, literally the walk list, door, like you said, precision, yeah. door to door, door to door. I knew how to do it and I knew how to train other people. And Eric said, if you want to do this, please take it on. We need people to do this. Um, and was going to give me some of the resources. And there was nobody to be found from the Bernie campaign. Um, and this is this is this is what I'm saying. And this is people, it's so people sad. like to get butt hurt. Over it's this. so sad. This is this is people like to get butt hurt and sit and Monday morning quarterback about what the problems were and that it was just all the Trump voters voting against their own in, in, um, interests. But the reality is the resources weren't coming down the pipeline. I called someone from the Bernie campaign who was supposed to be working this turf had one conversation with them and then never heard back again. And I said, do you understand? I have the Bible walk list here. Uh, I know what it is. And, and never so a word. And nobody came out here. Bernie never uh, visited, nor did his people. And it's problematic. And the same thing sucks. happened with the Hillary campaign. We couldn't so much as get yard signs. Literally could not get... And so the optics, and this is the thing that really sucked about that, Jerry, is that it changed the optics. It changed how journalists told the story about what happened. So then it creates, it raises more hackles and creates ire from the left about regions like this and said, you're just a bunch of hog-jowled racists out there who aren't doing anything in your own interest, which is simply untrue. Um, You know, while it's true that this is a, you know, there was a huge sweep of, you know, of these down ticket races, that's absolutely accurate. What is also true is that we weren't getting money or resources from from the parties, and, and know, yeah, to take care of it. And yeah, it, and it's, that's what was so that's what's so hurtful about the matter. I, I which which leads me to sort of like my next question, which is, uh, you know, we, we're talking about resources, money, obviously, huge, mm-hmm. uh, very important. Um, are there like? What other resources, uh, you know, do you think would be really useful for uh, for people like you and, um, you know, all everybody else who's doing this kind of organizing to have? Well, I mean, let's let's um, kind of go back and just within the last week, the kinds of things that we've been doing. And I mean, we get, we got a lot of shit done this week out here. Pardon me. I, I right. you're no. not subject to the FCC we, we are we are not now. we're not a family friendly <laughs> podcast. So, uh, okay. <laughs> um, I tend to tend to use Mother Jones's tongue in these matters, but uh, no big deal. Uh, so you know, let me tell you, this is this is this is kind of printing costs are enormous. Right. I mean, like if folks sent, you know, Kinko's cards or things like that, those are the kinds of things that are helpful because we just go through, we go through tons of printing on matters like this. We have some mm-hmm. local artists, but even even graphic designers who are willing to throw together really good. Um, really good design for us so that we can make our stuff look great. Translators. I mean, we're working with, we're working with people who uh, speak and read in Arabic and Spanish speakers, and we have some people here, but people are getting tapped out. It's, it's the human resources, and we don't want people to get exhausted because they're not getting paid for this stuff. Right. Make no mistake, we're not getting that George Soros money to do what we're doing. And this is something that's very important for people to understand. Um, you know, I myself am going to be running up against a wall very soon, and that's fine. But it's it's something that people need to understand. Is um, we can use very simple skills that can take people an hour or two a week could benefit us significantly. Today, one of our organizers, again Justin Brown, took it upon himself to say, "Hey, we need an organizing library. 
what we're finding is that we've got some generational shifts in understanding about how how organizing with people of color happens, particularly um, immigrant people, um, folks who are who are immigrants, um, not to use the language um, illegal alien or right. illegal immigrant because it criminalizes um, it criminalizes their existence and it actually um, puts a target a greater target on their back. So making sure that people know and understand good solid language in organizing or um, uh, you know how how to acknowledge your own privilege if you are if we as white people can start to acknowledge our own privilege and really really hear the needs of the people that we're organizing for um, and certainly that's in a community organizing effort uh, the legislative thing is a, is a whole different ballgame but yeah like things that we can use libraries uh, so Justin Brown has decided to take it upon himself to build a library an organizing library and literally within 24 hours, just by him putting it out there, we found a place to, to kind of stash it that is available to the community. And people are starting to put books and pamphlets into that library. And that's going to be very useful for us moving forward to create a con consolidated sense of um, how we organize it and the language that we use. Um, again, like I said, we're using some of the stuff from the Black Lives Matter organizing toolkit, We're using, which is great. Uh, we're also using, you know, the Indivisible Guide, which is a great one. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that we're looking for. Um, you know, and at the end of the show, I can maybe, like, provide you with a list of those kinds of things that we're working on. And the yeah, that would be great. That we need. That would be great. <clears throat> um, so what else do you want to talk about, Jerry? Um, <laughs> no, this, is, this has been, like, so useful and so educational because again like i said you know for people for example like myself who've never done any uh organizing um but mm -hmm. who want to contribute in some fashion right this is like I, I think i think a lot of people might listen to this interview and they'll and uh you know maybe i don't know the scales will fall from their eyes or something like that about kind of what what this work entails and how they can contribute to it so i think that's like super important for people to just just to hear that like if, sure. they, if they haven't been exposed to it. Um, and let me give you also an example. And when, it, when you talk about sort of organizing and the things that didn't and why it was kind of kind of wacky that a lot of stuff didn't make it down the pike here um, and, and why people voted the way they did. This is another critical piece of information. Um, the change message was so important here. Mm -hmm. There was because for so long, and this is this is something that you know sticks in my craw as well. I mean, the classes piece to to a lot of this is so important to me because, you know, I grew up in this community and I grew up, you know, um, you know when things were good for a coal miner, they were very good. But when they went bust, it was awful. And you know, right. I lived through the Reagan era here, and um, I lived through the bust. And my dad was young enough to have been able to reeducate, but there were times that were very, very, very difficult. And so I've always been sort of sensitive to that. So when anybody pushes back against sort of the coal miner mentality or the working class person mentality, um, you know, it, it raises my hackles a little bit, but I, I always want to try and help. And again, that's why I'm back here as a bridge communicator. But as I was door knocking last week or two weeks ago, I was in probably 50 houses that day. And I was, because of the nature of the school board issue that we're dealing with, it's one of those weirdo issues where you get people on the extreme left um, and people on the extreme right also agreeing on an issue. One, um, often because of taxes, but also because of um, the social issues. So it was um, 
the need to build a mega school as opposed to neighborhood schools right here and um as i'm doing this walk list there were a lot of people who swung from democrat to republican this this election and it was because of that change message that these people these people don't hear what our problems and our concerns are and jobs are huge here um you know whether it's the environmental issue or not whether if you can't work you can't it's maslow's hierarchy of needs basically right we're sort of walking door to door i'm finding i wanted to vote for bernie is what a lot of these people would say i liked bernie's message bernie spoke to what i what i wanted to hear but nobody else was coming out here bernie didn't show up hillary didn't show up so I had nothing, I had only to vote for Trump because he's the only one who showed up in Johnstown. He was the only one who showed up close by. So it, it seems like a lot of this is, you know, we, we have this, I think, uh, over the last sort of several decades, there's been this trend of polarization, right? So the, the kind of mm-hmm. the parties have moved farther apart and the people who are mm-hmm. who belong to the parties have sort of clustered into more ideologically coherent um, uh coherent, I don't know, spheres, whatever you want to call them, uh, neighborhoods, you know, what, whatever. Um, but at the same time, it seems like there are a lot of people uh, who are not necessarily like they don't have, I don't know, necessarily a firm ideology. It's not like they're like, oh, yeah, like I, you know, I have this like bullet point of, uh, of demands and, you know, the Republican Party really like meets those demands. It's more like, that they are just they, they sort of occupy this space where if one of the parties isn't addressing the needs that you know they're expressing that they, they'll just go to the one that is right so they're they're not necessarily ideologically like democratic or republican voters but they're just voters who like are demanding to be heard and is that is I that a is that a I fair description or i think a lot of it has to do with you know it's like when you try and call a complaint line and like you can't get a real person right. on the phone. <laughs> so you just like by the time you get to a real human you just give them both barrels and then if they actually hear you they're your best friend you know <laughs> right whether they're really the person who's going to serve your best interests or not they were the person on the other end of the phone that actually heard you after you know, going through an infuriating phone tree. It's like dealing with your long-distance carrier or something like that. Yup. Um, it's not that different. And, um, you know, I think, you know, there's been a lot of articles, and, you know, there these articles kind of infuriate me too, the, the Buyer's <laughs> Remarks articles, because they, they suit this narrative. They... They soothe, they soothe the wounds of the, of the erudite left, so to speak, um, about the buyer's remorse of, of voting for Trump in areas like this. And, you know, it is getting worse among people who voted for Trump and then they hear about the repeal of the ACA. And it's problematic here because people stand to lose their homes in areas like this because of the, the repeal of the ACA. You know, my parents um, could be really put in a, in a not great situation because of it, especially if the UMWA pension goes away. Right. Um, this, this, these are issues that really impact the region. And this is, these are issues that we talked about in Toomey's office and said, what are you trying to do? And what this does, when you look at the absolute economics of it too, um, it, it will cash strap the region even further in that generational equity w- won't be able to be passed down. I mean, a lot of 
folks, all they have in their family is one home, you know, and they can either borrow against it or use it to pass to their, to the next generation. But that, that will go away if as people age, they have to borrow against the home or sell the home to go into um, aging care facilities. I mean, this is an area with a, with a huge aging population. And there's a lot of us who are spending more time back here because our parents and grandparents are aging and there needs to be help. And it, it, it definitely impacts what's going to happen writ large with the economics of this region, which is really interesting and brings me back around to the immigration issue. Um, this area is hugely dependent on immigrants. And so again, I mean, historically, right, the the coal and steel industries have been, you know, extremely heavily immigrant, uh, have, have had extremely heavy concentrations of immigrants, right? Absolutely. I mean, like everywhere you go in Pittsburgh, uh, where, you know, I also lived for uh, a few years, um, right. there, you know, there are these murals and they depict like, you know, people from Eastern Europe. I mean, like mostly from Eastern Europe, because that's where people are coming from at the time. But there's all these different nationalities that were, you know, mixed into this, you know, in, in the literal melting pot of, mm-hmm. you know, the steelworks. Uh, they, they became a social melting pot as well, to some degree, uh, in, in places like Pittsburgh. And that's absolutely true. And I think that that makes organizing here very interesting as well in terms of because there is a, a disconnect. And one of the things that we in Welcome Home have decided needs to be a piece of what we're trying to do. And it's. You know, we're, we're trying to dig back into that um, and reaching out to other Appalachian um, communities to kind of reinvigorate some of that narrative. Because even within the coal community, um, uh, coal communities were not integrated per se, but once people were underground, it was very integrated. And because of the nature of, of work, um, there, is a, there is a true brother of, of people who worked that dangerous work together. And... You know, I've heard um, heard the grandchild of of um, uh, of someone who grew up here in a in a in a black community in Indiana County who said, "Once you were underground, everybody was black." You know, <laughs> right? And, I mean, it's a true story, and and there was a lot of organizing that took place with among the Eastern Europeans, the Italians, and the blacks because. They realized once they were underground, it was a true brother. And despite the fact that, you know, just like now, um, the government and the corporations wanted to drive a wedge between the immigrant communities and the white communities. And this is this is this is a battle long fought. And this is a piece this is a piece of that history that we want to call upon to say, you know, this is this is people really trying to drive a wedge, and that's not to say. I mean, I, I need I need to be very clear on this as well. <laughs> we are not trying to um, deny white privilege in these conversations at all, and this is we want to make sure that we're pushing we're pushing the needs of the most vulnerable and, and people of color and immigrants, contem- like contemporary immigrants, to the forefront and their needs to the forefront, but. A piece of that conversation also has a, a history, and there's a history of resistance in this region specifically. So we're trying to use that to reconnect people to their past and say, like, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't how it always was, um, you know. But that said, there's also a very rich history of of the KKK in this region. So we, it's it's a lot, it's a lot of work, but it can be done, and I think that, um, you know, again. 
do, doing the electoral work that that Indiana VIE and, and also there's a group called the Center for Community Growth mm-hmm. um, that has been doing for five or six years now really strong organizing around racial justice, economic justice, um, environmental justice. And they, again, have been doing film series and a great deal of outreach to say, like, we we have been doing progressive work here for a long time and we are, we're not going anywhere. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot. And I know it seems to see, be sort of traveling all over the place, but it definitely is very interconnected. Yeah, I think that there's uh, I mean, one of one of these, um, I guess, one of the bright spots of of the election was this mm-hmm. uh, big organizing effort in Nevada uh, mm-hmm. that got um, uh, Senator Cortez Masto, right, that's mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. elected. Um, and that was something that um, I think there was about, um, I want to say about 50,000 uh, SEIU or like workers were kind of like deployed in this effort, which is a, uh-huh. you know, it was a pretty remarkable um, sort of uh, bit of electoral heft, uh, given kind of the um, the nature of you know unions today and the extent to which they've been compromised sort of by uh, right. legislation right. and by dropping of par- participation yeah. and by right to work legislation, all this kind of stuff. So um, you know, I, I think that that's a that's something that like that's a result that people can look at and say, hey, this kind of stuff works. Like we, you can get a senator elected this way, uh, uh-huh. much less. I mean, and, and the senator is like, it's difficult to elect a senator. It's much easier to elect a state representative, a, a house district representative mm-hmm. at the state level, a school board member, right? All those things are eminently doable. Right. Um, so I, I think that like one of the, um, what, eh, what am I trying to say? I think... Uh, what, I, what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to say is that I think that you can look at those results and say, "Hey, this is possible." Like you don't need to. It's not like it's difficult, but it's not like it's not a the kind of titanic effort where you're you know trying to like lasso the sun or something like that. Well, true and and agreed. It, it's it's not like trying to lasso the sun, but you know there is. Um, there is the effort of humans. Yes. And it's the Margaret yes. Mead never underestimate the power of a few, few good people. Um, but it's also, um, you know, understand when we go back to Senator Toomey, Pennsylvania is a weird state. You know, um, one, it's gerrymandered as all hell, and you know this. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, a mess, and this is something that we are also pushing back against. Pennsylvania is like a 50-50 state, and I think the latest breakdown in the House districts was something like 513 in favor of Republicans. No, it's insane. And people are basically like, you know, putting on a, like, you know, people, it, it would look like, if you looked at it, like a child put on a blindfold and was just drawing on the map. But it was done with real concision. Mm-hmm. Just real mean-spirited concision. And that's the kind of thing that we also need to address is, you know, the League of Women Voters is doing very good work on this gerrymandering piece because basically what's happened is, and, and you know, um, the elected officials are now choosing their constituents as opposed to the other way around. Um, we, we have a group of people in office across the board now who, one, just want to make it miserable to vote. Mm-hmm. And this is something that's been going on a long ass time, Jerry. And I will tell you from experience in the 2004 election, we pushed to have one of the highest young voter turnouts in, in the country. 
Um, the 18 to 24 voter turnout in, I think it was precinct one, that would be at the University of Pittsburgh in Allegheny County, had the largest high, the largest young voter turnout, save for maybe University of Minnesota Duluth, which frequently goes 99%. But there were Republican attorneys literally standing over every kid who tried to vote in that election. And we had to have a van and keep the night courts open so we could get court orders so those kids could vote. They were denying every single Ridiculous. voter ID card that came through. There's no reason for that. People need to be able to vote. So there was that piece. There was the piece that we had one of the biggest um, voter registration drives in Allegheny County in that year. What we learned was in Allegheny County, they weren't even equipped to data enter all of those, wow. <laughs> all of those registrations. Wow. And so what we're doing, what we're dealing with, is a basic failure of understanding by all people, by all humans, in just what it takes to get people to vote. And so overlaying more problems is damaging to our electoral system. It's just very, so you can cast blame and aspersions on all sorts of people saying like, it's this person's fault, it's that person's fault. The way the very system works is set up against us. Not in a partisan way, just in a like, we don't have the capacity to handle the votes. That is problematic. So then if you overlay the issue of broken voting machines in a particular district and then crooked people in another district, it, the fact that anybody gets to vote is a miracle first and foremost, but but again, when you have, you know, we've confirmed Jeff, Jeff Sessions, who has historically been problematic when it comes to providing people access to votes, in fact, has made it more problematic. The state of Wisconsin is a damn nightmare with regard to this stuff, and it's just going to get worse. And so if you take that in and, and overlay it with the gerrymandering issue, essentially they are trying to keep anyone from being able to pull a lever, you know, in the smallest unincorporated townships to the largest cities. The fewer that vote, the better on behalf of the conservatives. And they know this. So we have to push back against that as well. <laughs> So yeah, again, it's, it's resources in all of these areas. Yeah, this is something that um, I think, especially like, this is something that I, I feel like, you know, if, if Democrats want to like win elections ever, this is something that really needs to be a priority. Uh, yeah, because for sure, because it's just like when you when you compromise the very nature of this of the voting system, like, you're just I mean, that's that's literally like undermining democracy, right? You're yeah. literally making it impossible for people to express their will. So, yeah. And to go back to your statement about, so I needed, I felt like I needed to go on that journey to preface, you know, to say, this isn't an insurmountable goal. I needed to say, there's a lot of shit. Oh, in yeah, between, absolutely. In between us and the polls, there's the gerrymandering, it's all of this other thing. So the other piece of it is, understand that Toomey's election was one of the most expensive elections in the state ever. Um, I don't have the actual number, but his race against McGinty was, was super expensive and ate up a lot of resources. And we know <laughs> that our friend Betsy DeVos contributed a significant amount to that campaign. Yep. And one of the issues was we went directly to his office and talked about how he needed to recuse himself from that vote. And now we know what happened. It came down to his ass at the 11th hour. 
Um, and that, that also is problematic. So we have, a, we have, we have it hard here in Pennsylvania, but, but that's not to say that we've just rolled over. We have people who have been fighting for a long time on this matter. Yeah. And, and so, and I think it's really important for, again, for everybody to hear this because, um, otherwise it like, it really does seem, you know, if, if you, if you don't know people, if you don't, uh, hear this information, then it does seem like, oh, right. well, what's happening? Like nothing is happening. Nobody's doing anything, but that's not true. Uh, a lot no. of people are doing like really awesome work and, well, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful because it was funny when, when you had initially posted and part of the, the, the folks who are listening at home should understand that, you know, you and I have been having conversations like this now for verging on eight years or something like that. Just Close enough. Yeah, nature. that's right. And, um, you know, it became most critical when a few weeks ago you and Jeremy started started talking shop about sort of Monday morning quarterbacking Pennsylvania. And your numbers mm-hmm. were right, but the story wasn't right. And I right. said, ah, you know, this is the thing. I want people to know that, yes, these numbers are accurate. And once people start casting their own narratives over top of this, it's going to shut down the resources from coming in. What they need to know is, the story is a lot more messed up than you think. It's a lot more nuanced, but it's a lot more positive than you think too. There's hope here. And that's yeah, the important yeah. thing. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I really want. Uh, you know, in addition to sort of the information about um, the different, the different organizations that are doing this work that I would like people to take away from this is that there is hope. It's just that like this hope relies on, you know, relies on uh, people, contributing their time, contributing their money, contributing other resources uh, that they may have. And not everybody is going to be in the same position to make those contributions. But I think a lot of, but I think a lot of the people who might be listening to the, to like our show and who might be like, like me, who again, like live in, like if you live in New York and you don't, you know, you're satisfied with your, with your representation and whatever, um, then you can like, you can turn your resources to other places yes. where that is not the case, right? And so you don't need to contribute another like $200 to Chuck Schumer because Chuck Schumer is going to get reelected anyway. Right. Uh, and let me give you a great example of how that works and how what, what can be done. And we're going to, we're in the process of setting up that infrastructure now. Um, you know, uh, Jeremy, your, your cohort mm-hmm. on, this, on this podcast and I had had a conversation about you know, so he said, so my contribute, my contribution to the, to the Clinton campaign pretty much went nowhere. It was like pissing in the wind. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Um, none of it made it to where it needed to go, at least in a state like this, which was a hard battleground state. But again, a really important thing to remember is that small informal networks can be very, very powerful, useful networks, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, Long historically, I have frequently gathered people together for libation and shit talking and, and merriment, <laughs> and it's something that's been very important to me because, you know, you meet an interesting person and you're like, oh, I would really like you to meet that person or this person. Um, using that network of people that we get together for happy hours, we can we can pull these people together and say, either we could make a collective contribution, or we could singularly say, hey. Um, I, I'm a I'm a tech I'm a techie. Like, how can we support this group? Right. Exactly. So, so these informal networks are going to become more and more critical, specifically in deep blue states, 
uh, like New York. I have friends in San Francisco and LA um, who I'm, I'm suggesting that um, you come together in these places and we're gonna we're gonna try and make it a lot easier. Like right now we're still able to take contrib- like financial contributions or for example, Indiana um, VIE, which is a critical one because it's a political action committee. We can either support local campaigns or we can pour that into some of the planning and organizing that goes into the next wave of, of elections that are coming up and filling the bench so that we're ready for 2018. But also, um, but also the Center for Community Growth who supports other organizing efforts within the community, um, particularly pertaining to immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna make it easier for people to contribute with things, with the technical mumbo jumbo, the, the, the stuff that the kids use like uh, PayPal and Venmo and those kinds of things. So that from a distance you can support those kinds of organizations. Um, and again, uh, with a free library, if, if you know where to access books, you can send us books. Um, but getting together, having conversations about how you can better support these local initiatives is definitely a way to do it. Have it over beers. I don't care. If that's what you want to do. If you're playing hockey, go play hockey and talk about this stuff. But know that these informal networks can be used to do very powerful things. The final thought that I wanted to close on was that sure. um, I think it's I think it's important for these informal organizations to sort of try to. Uh, whether it's whether it's informal organizations that are sort of doing the support or whether it's the organizations that are actually on the ground uh, doing the activism, mm-hmm. it gets really important to try to connect all those all those uh, people across you know across the country to of each course. other because um, where whether it's whether it's about allocation of uh, money and resources or whether it's about like the specific thing that's happening on the ground in Arizona mm-hmm. or you know, Nevada or Montana or wherever. Um, it's just like the, the, this idea that, you know, one sort of top level, you know, organization is going to, is going to direct all of those efforts. I think is like, I, I think we, we can see now that that is unrealistic. No, and, it's not. And, and, and yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think exactly what you're saying is right. I think it's the coalition building among the smaller organizations and uh, townships that is critical. Um, you know, we've been reaching out to Appalachia as a whole. Um, there's a great organization that, that is run by a woman named Gina Mamone, um, who <laughs> is uh, from West Virginia and uh, ended up founding Riot Girl Records. And um, she, uh, I found her through through um, Instagram. She hosts an in- Instagram called Queer Appalachia and. It has provided a lot of resources for people who are in rural areas who are part of the LGBTQIA community. And a lot of our back and forth conversations have put us in, have managed to sort of put us in touch with people here who, um, you know, because a lot of rural areas, for example, don't have a lot of gay bars. So where are people gathering? How, how are they finding access to one another so that they can empower themselves because they're scared. Uh, they're scared because of legislation. They're scared of harassment. Um, and so what that has empowered us to do is move forward in conversations with other places that are doing like-minded things. And we're actually on Monday having a conversation with um, the physician general in the state of Pennsylvania, Rachel Levine, who herself is a, is a trans woman, and um, talking about how we can provide better resources in rural areas from both a public health standpoint but a resource standpoint for our LGBTQIA community. So again, 
reaching out to like-minded organizations is critical. Um, I think Stacey Long, who I introduced you to as well, I mean, they're making great moves. Um, this is in an unincorporated village in um, Grant Township in Indiana County. Uh, they just uh, used their home charter uh, rule to uh, make civil disobedience legal, uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. And this is a township where they were dumping, um, they're wanting to dump, dump frack waste, and they're saying, no, you can't come and do that. And so with a lot of hard organizing um, and the opening up of the, uh, um, you know, in, in, the, in the shadow of the opening up of the Keystone Pipeline, they're saying, no, you can't come and do this. So reaching out to other communities who are facing some of the same dangers is actually really critical for us now. That's the only way we're going to get through this. Well, Darcy, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk to me about this. Um, and uh, so I, I hope that all the, the folks who have been listening to this show uh, take note of what, uh, what has been said here and take note of the organizations that Darcy has mentioned. Um, these are definitely organizations that are deserving of your support and that are doing really great work on the ground. Thank you, Jerry. I really appreciate it. And anytime, um, I'm always happy to, to, to send you some more great organizations. And I'll send you a list and maybe you can put it up on your site. We'll, we'll, we'll put it. Yeah, send me a list and we'll put it with the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jerry. Have a good one. Great. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye.